Hey, working listeners, the holiday season is upon us, and the Slate Shop is the perfect place to take the guesswork out of your gift list. Browse our selection of hand-poured candles, classy cocktail kits, stunning stationery, expertly crafted pasta makers, and everything in between. We even have official Slate merch for the Slate fans in your life. So from November 24th to November 27th, which is Black Friday through Cyber Monday, we're offering 30% off all items in the store. So head on over to slate.com shop and take advantage of that discount. You can get gift sets, stocking stuffers, white elephant gifts, maybe even something for yourself. Again, that URL is slate.com shop. Happy shopping. It is really important to me to have a positive vibe on set. There's sort of this romanticization of a chaotic set with a mad genius shouting. That's just like completely counterintuitive to how I work. Welcome back to Working. I'm Cameron Drews. Usually I'm the producer. Today I'm the host. And I am your other host, Isaac Butler. Isaac. How's it going, man? Good. It's it's Step, a, it, stepping into the host shoes. I know it's a little scary. I don't know if the shoes fit quite yet. They feel yeah. a little weird, but yeah. Let's see. Yeah, let's see. Let's let's check it out. But I have to ask, whose voice was preaching the gospel of good vibes at the top of the episode? That was the writer, director, and editor Christopher Borgley, who most recently helmed the A24 film Dream Scenario, which is in theaters right now. Awesome. I will admit that I saw that movie this past weekend, and it's great. But what drew you to (laughs) Christopher and to this material? Well, I uh, watched Dream Scenario because I'm in the midst of writing a piece about Nicolas Cage just as an actor and, Mm. and what makes him so special. And... I just really loved it. Uh, If if you haven't read reviews of the film, Dream Scenario is about a guy named Paul Matthews. He's a kind of nebbishy college professor who's never accomplished anything. He's played by Nicolas Cage. And then one day he just starts appearing in people's dreams all over the world. Have you been dreaming about me? Have I been dreaming about you? Yeah. He's not doing anything in those dreams. He's just standing there. <laughs> but but that makes him famous anyway. It's a very funny, scary, weird, smart look at fame, the attention economy, male ego, and a bunch of other stuff. And Nick Cage is great in it. So I just got very interested in figuring out, you know, who is this guy who made this movie and, and stuff like that. That sounds great. I know Chris Borgley also has another movie called Sick of Myself, which I'm really curious to see sick of myself is great it's a very intense uh difficult viewing experience it is about someone who gives themselves a rare skin disease and all sorts of other health problems in order to get the attention that her um rising art world star boyfriend is sucking out of her life oh my gosh okay well hopefully we'll hear a little bit about that movie in the interview too but let's not forget about our Slate Plus members, I imagine you saved a little bit for them. What's on the menu? Yeah, yeah. You know, we never forget about our Slate Plus members. I mean, how could we? They're so essential to what we do here at Working. And we have a a wide-ranging conversation that begins with talking with Chris about 
what he wants from notes from his work and stuff like that feedback you know and Mm -hmm. um somehow that got us on to the subject of a taiwanese bodybuilder who shoots videos of himself playing the violin and vomiting and uh how chris wound up inviting that bodybuilder to live with him for several months in los angeles even though the two men had never met that seems totally normal totally normal so if you're a slate plus member you are going to love that segment. Stay tuned for it at the end of the show. If you're not a Slate Plus member, head on over to slate.com slash working plus and sign up today. With Slate Plus, you get ad-free podcasts, you get bonus segments like the one we just talked about, and you get bonus full episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood. You also, of course, get full access to all of the articles on Slate. You won't run into the paywall. I should also mention that if you sign up for Slate Plus, you'll be supporting our work and all of the very, very talented writers and podcasters at Slate. These memberships are obviously super important to Slate's business model. They keep the lights on for us. So please sign up today if you would at slate.com slash working plus. That's slate.com slash working plus. Okay, let's listen to Isaac's conversation with Christopher Borgley, the writer and director and editor of Dream Scenario. Christopher Borgley, thank you so much for joining us this week on Working to talk about your process. Thanks for having me. So obviously, uh, we're here to primarily talk about your new film, Dream Scenario, uh, which is in theater starring Nicolas Cage. I just wanted to kind of rewind a bit and ask, uh, since you're also the writer of the film, kind of where the the film began, what its initial kind of kernel was. Yeah, it was actually with the character itself. Uh, I was thinking about a sort of uh, middle-aged professor who felt entitled and delusional about recognition for achievements that he hadn't even made. Uh, There was something funny about this character. And then on the side, at that time, I remember being sort of like into or or reading about Carl Jung and the collective unconscious and his ideas about persona and um, how that just felt very contemporary in many ways. And I think during that time also, it started. I started thinking about uh, Nightmare on Elm Street <laughs> and sort of how that sort of dream phenomenon felt like a horror movie and how I wanted to like rip that idea out of its horror genre and place it into our sort of banal contemporary culture and use it as a tool to sort of uh, investigate our culture in a sort of social anthropological way. And it became sort of clear to me that this was a social satire. Mm, That's really fascinating. You know, uh, did you go and rewatch those movies to try to see kind of how the mechanics of it work or or anything like that? Are you someone who delves into other movies to kind of search for inspiration? No, I was staying clear (laughs) of of it uh, until... I think right before I started shooting it, I was on the plane to where we were going to shoot it and they had Nightmare on Elm Street on the plane. I was like, okay, fuck it. Let's just do it. And then 
it has like a very similar moment in the film where they're talking about like, did you have a dream about this guy? And they start, you know, explaining how he looks like. And they're like, oh, my God, I had to. And I was like, oh, shit, is it going to be like too similar? But um, of course, like my film was always supposed to be a, a movie where Nightmare on Elm Street exists. All the sort of dream phenomenons that we can read about online, they exist in the movie. Uh, this uh, film deals with it in a, a very different way. Right. There's no scene where Nicolas Cage turns into a bed and eats Johnny Depp. Yeah, right. We we <laughs> didn't do that one. You know, I read this interview that you did with Kate Berlant where you said uh, this thing about first drafts and second drafts that, you know, in first drafts, you're just kind of pushing things you find interesting around. And in the second draft is when you make it feel like the story had meaning all along. So I, I'd love to ask you first about the first draft, actually, about like, how do you push those ideas around in a first draft, you know, when you're just trying to make it through and figure out what the story is? I guess in the first draft, you're following just the idea or the character and they're sort of telling you where they want to go or you try to force them into places that you have like a say a bank of scenes that you find interesting and wouldn't it be great if the character could just like naturally go from this fun scene to that fun scene Mm -hmm. and then they start forming their inner logic and they you start sensing what their integrity is and then you sort of have to stay true to that and then at a certain point it it feels like the character is telling you where they need to go and it becomes harder to push them into certain places and yeah it's like after a first draft i think you start seeing more what the subtext and metaphorical or allegorical qualities of the film are and if those feel interesting then you kind of go back and and double down on them and or make them clearer or yeah but i i don't have like a true like method that i work by it is mostly intuitive even though I have read, you know, uh, uh, Save the Cat and the Beat right. Sheet and all of these things, and which they actually come in handy when you're sort of maybe stuck and need just like a little bit of guidance. But uh, I, I think I've looked at that Beat Sheet enough now to uh, come to hate it and and avoid it at all costs. <laughs> right, right. When did the ending for the film kind of where Paul, that's Nicolas Cage's character, ends up at the end of the movie? Did that emerge pretty early on or did that come out of revision or? That was probably the third draft. I think that ending emerged and I think that I wanted to do a sort of a, you know, a Chekhov's gun, something that you set up early in the movie that has a payoff at the very ending. That was like a sort of sexy premise to me that I wanted to achieve. And um, I, I found this way of doing it. Right. Do you have that feeling? I, I get this sometimes when I'm writing, when you've like found the right ending and it's almost like a chord starts playing or something, you know, you just hear this like, ah, that was right. Do you get that kind of feeling or or does it never feel good? No, it's it, to me, I feel like, um, Art is never finished. It's abandoned. Mm-hmm. And you kind of just accept that it's a diminishing returns to keep hacking at it, you know? 
Yeah. But it did feel great to have um that type of ending where where it was like part of the sort of bigger picture architecture that it was something that came to some sort of conclusion that felt good to me, even though it is open-ended still. Yeah, totally. Um, was it always going to be set in the United States or was that something that kind of came around as it was developed for an American film company? No, it was, uh, I moved to the U.S., about seven years ago, I was writing my movie Sick of Myself when I moved here. And then uh, that took quite some time. It took m- many years to write that script. And in the meantime, I felt I started, you know, understanding the American culture, wanted to meet the American audience halfway. And I thought if I start a movie in a suburban uh, kitchen with a nuclear family, I will meet the audience halfway and, and we can sort of explore from that point, which was different than Sick of Myself, which is mm-hmm. sort of an invitation to my specific niche corner of the world that took place in uh, sort of uh, an esoteric art environment, uh, very specific to Oslo. And then I, I felt that, you know, some people might not take me up on that invitation. And I thought uh, with with uh, Dream Scenario, I wanted everyone to be invited. Right, right. Both Dream Scenario and Sick of Myself, they're, they're circling somewhat similar themes of, you know, a need for attention, ego, the internet and how it affects our psyche and stuff. Um, what, what draws you to that thematic territory? Well, I'm born and raised in Norway that has a, a which is a welfare state and it means that the basic needs is taken care of it means that what occupies us the most are these sort of more abstract and uh, existential issues of self-worth or uh, self-actualization potential and ambition and these things don't have a one-size-fits-all solution. They come in very different forms. And um, I think that it's just been ruminating in my head, these types of issues. Um, And they seem similar in the sort of privileged upper middle class of America, too. uh, That feels very similar to the welfare state. And I think just having just been occupied in that space for so long and found a lot of uh, almost comedic uh, uh, problems there. It's like almost self-made problems. It's these uh, ways that we make ourselves miserable and get in our our own way. Uh, We have seemingly everything that should make up a good life and still we're, we're just like anxious and miserable. And I think that that has made for a great comedy. Incredible. You know, one thing that I I find really fascinating about both movies is that, you know, both characters, there is a a nugget of something that you sympathize with there, right? Like Cigna is actually neglected by her narcissistic boyfriend who makes everything about him, right? Or like Paul Matthews, I mean, he hasn't actually done anything to have an achievement about, but you can understand why he's upset 
about not having the recognition he thinks he deserves on some level. And he appears to be a good husband and father at the beginning. Um, you know, I just thought it was interesting how you layered in these kind of little things to make sure that the, it's, the joke isn't always on them, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been sort of honest about my own bad qualities with these characters. I, I've taken, you know, the hopefully small amounts of terribleness that has lived in my head and made it the main feature of these characters, maybe as a um, a way to exercise my own demons too. And, right. um, you know, the... the for sick of myself, you know, I, I've been in a relationship where uh, I try to overperform my own um, illness. Like if I have a headache and I'm by myself, I just have to suck it up and manage that headache. If I'm in a relationship, I for some reason need to make that both of ours problems. Right. Uh, and I need to perform it in order for the other person to recognize and sympathize and join me in the experience of my headache. And and just that seemed very comedic to me. And I wanted to explore that where I wasn't I wasn't breaking the integrity of the character that I had written. And the right. same with uh, uh Dream Scenario, Paul Matthews and his sort of um realization uh and horror of the discrepancy between the image he has with himself or of himself and the image that the world around him has, uh, that feels very truthful. That feels like a, a real sort of identity crisis that I've experienced too. And um, I think that the way that I just cope with my own anxieties is trying to make fun of them uh, mm -hmm. and trying to find the comedic aspect of sort of the kind of difficulty it, it is of, living life right right okay we're gonna take a quick break but we'll be right back with more of isaac's conversation with christopher borgley hey working listeners just a couple things really quick first of all if you are hitting a dead end with your creative work, if there's a problem you're struggling to solve with a project, big or small, we might be able to help. Every other Thursday on Working Overtime, we discuss creative wisdom, and sometimes we help listeners with their creative conundrums. So if you want help from the brilliant Isaac Butler or June Thomas, if you want them to give you personal advice, send us an email at working at slate.com or give us a call at 304 933-WORK and you can leave a message. Okay, final thing, please make sure you're subscribed to Working in your podcast app of choice and that way you will never miss an episode. Thanks. Okay, let's return to Isaac's conversation with Christopher Borgley. Both of these films you worked with the DP Benjamin Loeb. I, I'm just sort of interested in what your collaboration with him is like. Yeah, I, I we met many years ago, way before any of these projects were even conceived, because we're both Norwegian, and I had followed his work for a while, and I was very interested in working with him. We just never found like a shorter project to work on, but uh, finally, when 
I had it was actually dream scenario that he came on to uh, collaborate on first. And then because of the pandemic and because of scheduling conflicts and everything, suddenly I had to make sick of myself first. And I thought, why don't you just do both movies? Mm. And uh, I think we have like a really fun and great collaboration. And he's a a great uh, partner in really taking care of that area, being like a, a true director of photography taking all the responsibilities of, of that whole department, which has relieved me a little bit because I have many hats. I'm the writer and director and also now the editor. So it's great to have uh, people who really take on that responsibility in, in such a way. Mm. Do you storyboard? Not really, no. We do photo boards. We try to. Uh, I think the main thing is that we shot list. And the process grew more and more fluid from the beginning of Sick of Myself to the end of it and the beginning of Dream Scenario towards the end of it. We just started trusting each other more and not being so rigid about how to shoot things that we actually made a lot of decisions on set, which, you know, at the beginning of Sick of Myself felt like a huge risk. But by the end of Dream Scenario became just the playbook. We would, um, you know, do rehearsals on or, or, or map, block out a scene. And as we're blocking out the scene, we're taking photos, we're figuring out angles, we're, we're sort of responding off of the real environment with the actors there. Uh, we have like an idea of what, what we want to achieve, but the actual sort of exact uh, uh, location of the camera and lenses and everything, we figure that all out now uh, on set. Mm, wow. Um, it's interesting because the films do still have a really clear visual vocabulary. You know, I'm thinking about like how often in Sick of Myself, it's like a long zoom, you know, with a like slightly handheld camera feel and there's bodies crossing in front of the image and, and, and stuff like that. Um, how do you figure out that visual vocabulary? Do you think of sort of like, are you talking about theme with, with uh, your DP or, you know, how do those things develop? Yeah, definitely. I mean, specifically for Sick of Myself, we thought of the camera as a sort of an active participant, Mm -hmm. sort of an eye that the characters were fighting for. Right, yeah. So we had this camera uh, deliberately be a little bit confused about who the main character in this movie is. So it constantly is like panning around, searching, zooming, like trying to figure out who am I focusing on? And it stayed a little bit like uh, more objective in terms of it, it was the camera that they were performing for. And in Dream Scenario, it was like so clear that the main character was Paul Matthews. So we just decided to go a little bit more subjective and stay uh, w- with a camera that just told the story through the feeling of being Paul Matthews. Mm. Sick of Myself was uh, shot on 35 millimeter, if I remember correctly. Was Dream Scenario also shot on film or did you uh, pivot to digital? No, um, it was very important to me on both of these projects to shoot on film, or I guess it's always important to me. And um, a way to be able to shoot 
film for both of these projects has been to offer up editing for a very cheap price. I, I, you know, underbid myself as an editor so that the director and me can get uh, the film. Mm. You mentioned earlier that it's really important to you to shoot on film and not on digital. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, it's um, a little bit hard to quantify exactly what is going on, but you feel the difference. And there's a way that film feels a little bit closer to a dream in the way that memory and dreams both work in imperfect ways. They're not objective document of something that happened. They are processed a bit. And film does the same thing. It processes light in a way that feels closer to memory to me. It feels more like a subjective experience of a moment. And it feels like it's it's someone else's memory. It's not like the documentary feeling. You're not actually there. Someone else was there and captured it. Uh, and I think that that is uh, a feeling that makes cinema more magic to me. Other than that, I just love the look. The way that film deals with skin tones and light is very unique still and hard to replicate digitally. Um, so it's it's both like an aesthetic and also like more of a philosophy of what film is. Mm. Fascinating. You are, as you mentioned earlier, also your own editor. And so I'm curious as to how much that's in your head when you're on the set. You know, like there's folks like like Bong Joon-ho or Joel Cohen actually know what the edit's going to look like and they're shooting to the edit, right? Fame, like they're pretty open about that in interviews. Is that, but but you said you're actually, you know, figuring out the camera angles as you go along on set and stuff like that. So how much is the editor, the fact that you're going to have to make sense of it as an editor in the back of your head? It is uh, very handy to know the language of editing when shooting. And um, maybe I don't know exactly how the scene itself is going to be cut, but I know where it's going to end and what's following it and how the cut from this scene to the next scene is going to go. And I think that's very helpful to have a more of a big picture idea of the story that you're telling. And you can... um, be comfortable with if, if a scene is like it's not supposed to come to a conclusion the edit is supposed to do the conclusion it's just good to know that you're not if something feels like it's not working because the scene has like something missing it's good to know that like well when i edit it's gonna actually be funny the cut is gonna make it funny right, uh, right. stuff like that yeah did you write dream scenario with nicholas cage in mind no i didn't have anyone in mind when i was writing it um i didn't know that I could even get to that level. Right. So that was first when, when A24 and my producers got involved in the script, that's when we started talking real names. But in my head, he was just like a, a sort of like a, a fictional abstract uh, character. Got it. Um, were there ways that the character changed once he came on board or in your conversations with him, things that happened with the character that were, uh, that kind of came out of that working relationship? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, the way that he, embodies the character was more vibrant and alive than on the page he does so many interesting choices body language mannerisms the voice uh, 
voice and pauses and and uh the way he walks like all of these things really came alive in the in the pre-production and a lot of it is uh nicholas cage's authorship on top of the script uh we didn't really change the lines or the script itself but the the performance definitely is now uniquely uh, what it is because of Nicolas Cage. And there's no way for me to even remember what it was before he was involved. It, it, it's like now it's so clear that this is the character. Right. But there was definitely moments and things and ideas that came from talking with Nicolas Cage, who has experienced so much of what the character goes through. He could be a bit of a sounding board for certain situations. And there's a moment in the film where someone breaks into the house and is suddenly in the middle of the night standing in the bedroom. And Nick told me that that had happened to him. He had woken up once in his house and a stranger was in his bedroom. And I was like, okay, so is the script sort of what you would say? He's like, no, I just said, who are you? Get out of my house. And I was like, okay, well then we'll change the script because that sounds more authentic than what I wrote. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, you know, all the kind of the physicality of the character, the voice, because Cage is doing a little bit of a different voice from his normal speaking voice. He's bald, you know, um, uh, all of those different things. So those came together kind of in, in pre-production conversations. Yeah, exactly. And then the challenge for me, too, was uh, the, the idea was that we were going to deal with the comedic premise of someone who is so undeservedly of attention gets it. And mm -hmm. that someone fully unremarkable becomes, as said in the film, the most interesting person in the world. Right. And then, you know, Nicolas Cage being so recognizable and having so much charisma and being so well-functioning in social situations, we needed to be like, how do we get you to feel extremely uh, uncomfortable with social situations and how can we make you disappear in the herd? And we just had to combine a, a bunch of things. It was uh, his idea to go bald. Um, I had a very specific sort of suburban father wardrobe in mind. Uh, we even made a prosthetic nose that's not too far away from his real nose, but just enough to make this sort of uncanny feeling of watching someone who you haven't fully seen before. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, the tone of both of your films is so specific, and it, it really extends beyond the the visuals to the performances, right? Like I, I think about how Nicolas Cage begins dream scenario already like a little more heightened than the other performances because the character is himself kind of performing. Whereas in sick of myself, it takes us a while to figure out what's really going on with, um, Cigna with in, in Christine Kuja Thorpe's, uh, performance. How do you communicate those kind of tonal things and what you want on that level to the actors as you work with them? I mean, we just have discussions about the integrity of the character. And I think a rule that I always set is that the character is not in on the joke. Mm -hmm. So the character is actually living inside of a drama. And we are shooting a drama film. The comedy comes alive in the audience, they are watching the comedy, but we, when we're on set, when we're shooting and we're, we're debating scenes, 
we're talking about drama and and staying uh, or avoiding low hanging fruits of comedic opportunities, and rather try to see the the like gravity that these you know cringe inducing moments has for the character, and that makes it so much more uncomfortable to watch. And then because I feel that the best comedy comes out of these uncomfortable situation that's when it becomes funny to me and i think maybe that's the specificness of the tone is that i like really chase that type of moment and that type of acting do you rehearse i mean beyond blocking the scene are you are, do you do rehearsals is that part of your process yeah it definitely is a part of my process and also uh, as a writer actually that i hopefully get to spend a couple of weeks in pre-production with the actors trying to go actually through all the most important scenes of the whole script and read through them and see if there's anything that needs massaging, some kinks to work out. Uh, and it's a great opportunity to, to improvise because uh, in my experience, you don't have time for that on set. You, you only have time to shoot the script. So I use the time in pre-production to do get all the improvisation out of the way uh, if there's any goal that we find in the improvisation, I put that into the script. I record all of the rehearsals on my phone and I listen back to it and I see, was there any words that were better than what was in the script? And that's the way to sort of take advantage of, of improvisation, even on a tight schedule. Right. Because I assume the schedule, what did you have, like 30 days? It was just shy of 30 days. Yeah. Right. And it's a lot of locations. There's dream sequences. There's, uh, you know, there's a lot going on. Yeah, no, this was a real challenge uh, to figure out the schedule of, of all of these things and when to have live alligators come on set and which location they should come on. And and yeah, it, w- it was like a, a real challenge mapping out uh, this one. But uh, I had uh, great support. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When you're on set, do you think about kind of your performance as the director and the kind of atmosphere you want to cultivate when you're there? Very much so. Yeah, it is really important to me to have a positive vibe on set because I find it so difficult to come up with anything creative or inspired when we're stressed, when we're anxious. So I, I make sure that everyone chips in and does their part in in protecting the vibes on set. Uh, I'm very much a vibes person. I can get so thrown off my creative energy if the vibes aren't right. Mm -hmm. So I think that um, there's sort of this romanticization of a chaotic set with a, a mad genius at top who's shouting to get great performances and that's just like completely counterintuitive to how I work. It right. it, it just feels like a handicap. Um, and and it, it's very important to me that, uh, that the collaboration comes out of love and not fair. And um, and I do everything that I can to to protect that on set. And, uh, you know, if you're you might wake up in the morning and not be feeling particularly positive, though, I imagine, you know, like on day 20 or whatever. <laughs> um, are there things you do to kind of psych yourself into that more positive, creative place? I it's almost sounds silly, but I'm so fucking excited about making movies that mm-hmm. it's almost hard for me to to not I don't see the things as 
threats, but as challenges. That's at least how I try to think of things. When we have a challenge that isn't existential or it's not a threat to you, uh, but something that we need to just tackle as a team and try to work around and try to stay uh, positive minded. And um, yeah, I mean, it's we we are dealing with pressures of, of we're changing the schedule. We're shooting nights and then we're shooting early mornings and sleep is so fragile. There's all of these things that I just think that we need to be very mindful and and um, to just listen to each other's needs and try to make, the you know, shooting a film as healthy as possible. Yeah. Chris, thank you so much for joining us this week to talk about your process. I really loved the film, so thanks for coming on and talking about it. Thanks for having me. This was so fun. Okay, up next, Isaac and I will talk about when to stick to your vision and when to be flexible. Plus, I'll ask him what Christopher meant by save the cat. Stick around. Isaac, that was a great conversation, and I kept thinking about something that we've discussed on the show a lot. I know you've talked about this a lot, which is letting the work of art be what it wants to be instead of forcing it into a specific vision. And Christopher seems like a real expert at this. In other words, he seems to embrace revision throughout the whole process. You know, like he yeah. has one idea of what the main character is and then you cast Nick Cage and you have to make all of these adjustments and the character is something new. Uh, he seems to tweak scripts a lot and make changes throughout the whole process. And this is this is cool. This is admirable, I think, but it's also a little scary, right? Like it means that you have to let go of that initial vision that you might feel really married to. And so to turn things over to you, you've directed plays, you've written multiple nonfiction books, lots and lots of articles. Are you someone who develops a vision and, and clings to it and tries to execute that vision? Or do you start somewhere a little more vague and surrender to the process? <laughs> yes, you can have my vision when you pry it from my cold, <laughs> yeah. dead hands. No, no, honestly, you know, most creative people I've talked to like there's things you know going in and then there's things you figure out along the way. And to be honest, sometimes the things you figure out along the way are that the things you knew going in are wrong or aren't going to work, right? I mean, like you have to start with something. I basically only know a couple of artists in my life who begin with just like nothing. You know, Raja Feather Kelly talked in his interview about how he goes into the room without any choreography planned and figures it out in the moment. There's not that many artists I know who are like that. Sometimes for me, there's usually like a few things that I know I want to hit. And then the discovery process, the charge, the energy comes from how do I get from A to B to C to D, right? Now, what that means in terms of keeping to your vision is uh, along the way of creating something you figure out or the piece tells you to be sort of woo-woo about it, what are mm -hmm. the non-negotiable parts? You know, the things that can't change, the things that shouldn't change. And a lot of the editing process or the revision process or whatever is figuring out how to make those things that can't change better. I'll, I'll give you one example. I recently guest hosted an episode of Decoder Ring, and there's one quote in there. It's like four seconds of audio. 
the rest of the team wanted me to cut it. And I said, no, that quote has to go in there. It's actually like the meaning of the piece is right in there. It is totally non-negotiable. And we went back and forth and back and forth about this many times. And what it eventually led to was a really fruitful conversation about like, okay, well, why isn't the quote working for them? How yeah. do we fix that and keep it in? And, and what additional context does it need to work? And it turns out that the actual solution was like a longer quote like we took that quote and some of the stuff that was around it and left it in and that mm. contextualized it and everything like that but you know it really is about figuring out what is absolutely necessary and what isn't and in directing plays that's true too you know the characters have to enter they have to exit but it could mm. be everything in between in that scene needs to be figured out in the room yeah i should say to listeners to decoder ring is a great slate podcast what is your episode called so they can listen to that Yes, it is called When Art Pranksters Invaded Melrose Place. And I'm not going to tell you anymore because the story is so insane. Intriguing. Okay. So Christopher said something that I sort of need explained a little bit, and maybe listeners do too. Uh, Christopher mentioned Save the Cat. Which I googled, which I googled. <laughs> you're groaning already. Uh, it appears to be a book about screenwriting. I had never heard of it. He also talks about something called beat sheets, which I think are mentioned in Save the Cat. Uh, first, it sounds like you are familiar with this book. Could yeah, you yeah, totally. Explain what sure. it is. But also, I, th- there's a second thing I'm wondering, which is like, what is your relationship to books about right. writing, and are they useful to you at all? Save the Cat is a screenplay writing handbook and system and cottage industry um, created by the late Blake Snyder, who's not a particularly distinguished screenwriter. You know, his his two big credits are Stop or My Mom Will Shoot uh, from 1992 and 1994's Blank Check, which is a movie you've never heard of for a good reason. Uh and, and the idea is that it's a ready-made structure for making a satisfying movie that viewers are going to like and it's going to let you kind of do what you want. I got to tell you, this formula is so pervasive that mm. I think a lot of people feel like it's kind of ruined American screenwriting. And there's times where I kind of agree with them. It is also true that movies like The Matrix actually follow the formula of Save the Cat and stuff like that. And so one of the things that Save the Cat comes with is what's called a beat sheet. And that is the structure, the save the cat structure. I'm not going to go into what all of it is, but listed out into what the individual beats are and literally what page number of a 90 to 100 page screenplay those beats should appear on, right? Like the B plot should begin on page 30. I mean, that's how specific it is. Uh, And once you know the structure, you can actually just see it all over the place in American screenwriting. Uh I think that it's really useful as a writer, particularly when you're starting out, to kind of adopt ready-made forms and just embrace those restrictions and see what happens. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That doesn't mean you have to stick to them. That doesn't mean that that's good screenwriting. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. As a nonfiction writer, you know, or a, or even a fiction writer or a screenwriter, it's like, why don't you try to write your story as a recipe or an instruction manual, right? Or a letter. Maybe it's epistolary. You know, there's all these forms out there, like take them and see what happens and, and how you can adopt those things to them. I don't really 
consult craft books much anymore. I feel like even stuff like grammar guides like gets into my head and makes me too critical of my own work. These are the exceptions. I think, you know, if you're interested in writing, no matter in what form or media, um, you really owe it to yourself to get Charles Baxter's, who was my mentor in grad school, his three books on writing. They're called Burning Down the House, The Art of Subtext, and Wonderlands. And if you want a taste for how brilliant he is, you can actually on YouTube look up the lectures he did at Breadloaf, and um, you'll get a kind of taste for how inspiring he is. Uh, and if you're starting out as a nonfiction writer, I really recommend the book Tell It Slant by Brenda Miller and Susan Paola. It's gone through a bunch of different editions and its subtitle changes every time. But I think the current one is creating, refining, and publishing creative nonfiction. It's so great. You'll learn so much uh, and it'll give you a lot of different ideas to work with. Okay. Finally, I have to bring us home with a quick conversation about positive vibes. Good vibes only, Cameron. Good vibes only. I got it. So this is something I think about as a producer a lot. I think sometimes I'm okay at it. Sometimes I forget to be okay at it. Uh, You know, when you were a theater director and your job was to stress about every single detail, did you also have the capacity to think about something as abstract as the vibe? Yes. And in fact, I think the creation of the environment in which everyone can be their best selves creatively is the job of the director. You know, I mean, there's all sorts of other parts of the job, staging and things like that, you know, but like particularly in theater, which is such a collaborative art form, like a lot of the job is just creating the space where everyone can really bring their best selves. I can understand especially why uh, Christopher Borgley works so hard on it because his movies are really dark. They're really funny, but they're really dark and the characters have to go to excruciating places. And so having that kind of vibe, I think, is important. This is the truth. Cameron, and maybe you've thought about this as a producer as well. When you are a director, you are actually performing way more than the actors because the actors are only performing when it's time to do their scene. And the director, in fact, is performing at all times. You never stop at work performing because you're trying to give that performance that's going to create that environment. And so the more you can think about it, I mean, it's hard to think about it in the moment. You have to kind of think about it before and then enter the space kind of ready to be that person. I think that's really important. I think it's actually really important for anyone who's in a management position. And and the thing that we often forget is that, you know, producers, directors, those are management jobs. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I think the most performing I do as a producer, and this is sort of like an instinct that I've built up, is to, this sounds bad, but sort of like hide my stress. Yeah. I try and project openness and kindness as much as possible, even if like, that's kind of not what I'm feeling on the inside like Like right now you're enraged. And you're just uh, you're you're doing a great job of just pretending to have a good conversation with me. But I snapping pencils in half. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. No, but it's it's true. It's like when do you let people see that you're stressed? Sometimes it is useful for people to see that you're stressed. Oh, right. So like, when do you let that happen? Well, that's like you have to be really, really careful about that. Yeah, yeah. And, And if you're always happy, and then one day you're upset about something, it sort of feels like it comes out of nowhere. And totally, you know, people didn't know there was a problem and suddenly there's a problem. Yes, absolutely. Well, that is all the time we have for this week's episode. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to Working. And if you 
really liked it, go the extra mile. Sign up for Slate Plus. You'll get ad-free podcasts. You'll get bonus segments on our show and plenty of other shows. You'll also get bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood. And of course, you will not hit a paywall if you're a Slate Plus member. You can sign up for Slate Plus today at slate.com slash working plus. Thank you to our guest, Christopher Borgley, and to our producer and fill-in co-host, Cameron Drews. Working with you is a dream scenario. Tune in next week for June's conversation with casting director Logan Clark. Until then, get back to work.